developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you. You define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Lynn, and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today, visiting with us is my dear friend and colleague, Dr. David Damari. David is truly an amazing person, as you'll quickly see his power, passion, success, and influencing abilities. Today, we're going to talk about visual disabilities and David's role in helping various testing organizations comply with disability laws in the United States. Uh, Before we start, I I want to tell you a little bit about uh, David's impressive life here. His mission is to help everyone whose potential might be limited by visual function, uh, by visual functional difficulties to overcome these difficulties, whether they are his own patients or future patients or students that he teaches and influences. Uh, David graduated from SUNY, State University of New York, and did a residency in visual rehabilitation there as well. In addition to being in private practice for a while, he was a consultant to the National Board of Medical Examiners to assist in providing access to the United States Medical Licensing Exam for medical students with visual disabilities. And this is really a big deal because we all know that when there's a, a student with a disability or any person, it can greatly impact uh, their jobs, getting into jobs, and their whole life's future. David started in academic, uh, academia as a uh, professor, and then from 2013 to 2021, he was the dean at the Michigan College of Optometry at Ferris Univers- State University. He is now currently, very recently, has now become a clinical professor at Ohio State University, uh, excuse me, the the Ohio State University. (laughs) Uh, And his focus is on the assessment of patients with visual dysfunction and disabilities. He's working with students, uh, people in work, athletes, the whole group here. He can partner with those patients to overcome those obstacles through vision therapy and effective accommodations under the Americans with Disabilities Amendment Act. I got to know David quite well years ago when we both served on the COVD, College of Optometry and Vision Development Board of Directors, and I gained such respect for his work and attitude and passion there. So I'm delighted to have you uh, on Vision Beyond Sight. Welcome, Dr. David Damari. Thank you, Dr. Hallerston. It's uh, very good to talk to you again. It's certainly a delight, and I'm just... Um, 
I wanted to congratulate you on your your move. You were a great dean for about eight years, and now you're back back in the classroom and the clinic with students. And I want to hear more about that. But but tell us, I mean, this is a course that most optometrists do not, well, most medical doctors either don't get involved in. How did you uh, start working with people with disabilities? Well, it began when I was in private practice in Rochester. And uh, the National Board of Medical Examiners, who administer the licensing exam for the entire United States for medical doctors, um, had a test applicant who claimed she had Irwin syndrome. And um, this applicant was going to the University of Rochester School of Medicine. And the medical board really didn't know how to handle this disability claim. It's something they hadn't seen before. It seemed vaguely visual. So they looked at the literature and they saw uh, Dr. Mitchell Scheiman's uh, landmark study on Erlen syndrome and visual symptoms, which I think you probably remember when um, it's from 1990. And in that study, Dr. Scheiman and his co-workers found that about 95% of people who had been diagnosed with Erlen syndrome also or instead had uh, focusing dysfunction. So they asked Dr. Scheiman, well, who can we send this candidate in to see in Rochester, New York, who could give us some clinical data about her condition? And uh, I was fortunate enough that Dr. Scheiman knew me and he referred this, this student to me, and I saw her, and I, <clears throat> my reporting is very data-driven, so I saw this young woman. She indeed had a very severe focusing dysfunction, um, and I sent a report to the medical board that included all my clinical data, which I report as standard scores because that's common educational language. And you know as well as I do that the speaking the language of the people you are communicating with is very important. For uh, sure. We'll talk about that more when we talk about disabilities. Um, anyway, I sent them this report. Um, and then about three months later, I got a letter in the mail asking me if I'd be willing to be retained as their consultant on visual disabilities. And uh, I have to say, I called them and uh, said I thought they were making a mistake because um, I wasn't sure they knew, but I'm an optometrist, not an ophthalmologist, and I'm a surgeon. <laughs> and um, they said, yes, we know that, um, but you're the only one who's ever sent us data, and so we would like you to review cases for us. And that was 25, over 25 years ago now. And I've been working for the medical board ever since. I do this work also for the osteopathic medical board. I do it for a large organization, international organization that um, certifies charter financial analysts. Um, I do it for the law school admissions council recently. They've become one of my clients and a number of state bar associations. And well, it's very... I'm sorry. No, please go ahead. 
I was just going to say it's very rewarding work because um, I like to make sure that students who have visual disabilities are able to access those tests uh, to their best capabilities. Um, and, and I find that often these students, what they think is going to help them um, isn't really the best thing to address their visual condition, um, either because they've been misled or because um, they aren't really aware of what the test they're going to take is going to, to, to demand from them visually. Um, and also, you know, I, I have a strong background in testing as well. And so preserving the integrity of the test for those candidates who are disabled and who aren't disabled is an important thing to me as well. So this is a really important uh, role that you play because for our listeners, we're just not talking about people who are blind or have severe vision loss, like 2200 or uh, part of a field of vision. Uh, your first case was somebody who had more of what we'd call um, a behavioral or functional problem that can't focus or, and I'm sure it gets into double vision or can't track and all these other issues that so often are ignored or, you know, there's no attention placed on the importance of those kinds of visual skills and test taking. So, you know, I remember that study so well, and I still have difficulties, and I'm going to want to hear more from you. You know, if I have, let's say, a high school student that has a major binocular eye-teaming problem and may get double vision after working for a short time, trying to get like an SAT or ACT or standardized testing, getting any kind of support from them, I literally still find it almost impossible if they're not, quote, visually impaired by the definition of uh, the state or the government kind of thing. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the kinds of, um, you know, students, what kinds of problems that you found with them so our listeners know it's, it's not just, you know, total vision loss, which is what most people think a visual disability is. Right. Um, yeah, and I think that's the other thing that was appealing to the medical board about my background is because I'm not a surgeon and because um, I did a residency in these other kinds of visual conditions that can be quite disabling for readers, um, they, they really wanted my input. And I have to say that most of my colleagues who do this work, and there's not a, a lot of us across the United States. Uh, I can count them on one hand, as a matter of fact. Um, <laughs> most of them are not ophthalmologists. Most of them are optometrists because we specialize in vision science and visual function. Um, and, and they do run the gamut. At one point, I was curious, and I kind of took a census of the cases I had reviewed. And um, my operating hypothesis was that optometrists would be more likely to endorse um, binocular vision disorders or eye movement disorders or focusing disorders as disabling, and ophthalmologists would not endorse those things. And what I found when was kind of striking 
Ophthalmologists were endorsing those kinds of visual functional issues as disabling at a slightly higher rate, well over 50% of the cases they, they were referring for accommodations, um, at slightly higher rate than optometrists. Um, so when they're not publicly um, questioning the impact of these conditions on reading, they are acknowledging that um, students can be quite disabled by accommodative binocular or eye movement functioning problems. That's fascinating, uh, David, that that's what the study showed. Uh, because you and I know often when patients go for ophthalmology evaluations, um, often accommodation isn't thoroughly evaluated. And ocular motor dysfunctions, if it's uh, full and un unrestricted, often the quality of that eye movement looking at eye movement cameras and other things isn't evaluated. So that's very interesting that you found that kind of a percentage. Yeah, in one case, um, the, um, uh, the ophthalmologist had suggested that a medical student's uh, focusing dysfunction was responsible for her disability, and, uh, but didn't offer any data, just offered the diagnosis of accommodative dysfunction. Uh -huh. And um, the medical board wrote her back, this ophthalmologist, and said, uh, that's phenomenal that you diagnosed this. Could you please send us the clinical data behind your diagnosis? And um, the ophthalmologist admitted that she didn't have any data um, because the patient was cycloplegic or <laughs> focusing was paralyzed when she examined her. But she was convinced that the medical student had accommodative dysfunction, and we should just take the ophthalmologist's word on that. Amazing. That, that's uh, sort of what I thought, <laughs> <laughs> which is really interesting. Wow. So, so if you find a student, you know, let's get to how do you get involved in a case? Does a student bring that up requesting a problem? Or, you know, how does uh, that student... Uh, get to you or others in this field uh, who are requesting some type of an accommodation? The way it typically works is that the student will get evaluated um, for a visual function problem. Um, and they, they mention to their eye care practitioner that they're going to be taking a standardized test and that they'd like accommodations. Um, typically what they'd like is uh, extended time, which I hope we get a chance to talk about because that's a very interesting accommodation um, and not always a, a, an appropriate one. But anyway, so the student will talk to their practitioner about it. The practitioner will examine the student and send a report to the testing organization. And then the testing organization, by law, is required to consult with an expert in that area of healthcare, um, and they send those medical records to the healthcare expert. Um, in in Supreme Court terms, because this was a Supreme Court case that really drove this uh, system, this model. Um, Sandra Day O'Connor called these experts gatekeepers because they are kind of they're independent. Um, but they know the demands of the test or the job, 
they also know the science behind the the, the disability, uh, the physical disability. And so the gatekeeper's job is to consult for the organization and try to um, resolve the the um, tension between test integrity and allowing uh, an equal playing field for the disabled individual on that test or that in the workplace. And so as a practitioner, what type of data are they looking for? Is it our routine evaluations, a whole, you know, binocular workup or? Yes. Yeah. So the, the way most gatekeepers, including myself, do this is we look at the clinical data around the functions that are going to impact reading. So uh, you and I know that means uh, especially reading eye movements, um, focusing, the ability to keep focus on the page uh, and not have a lot of variability of that focusing, um, and ability to aim both eyes in a coordinated fashion at the page. Um, and then we compare that those data to the norms, and these are all well-normed functions, and uh, determine if the if that candidate, that test candidate, is indeed disabled relative to the general population. Uh, and then if they are um, significantly impaired relative to the average population, is the accommodation they're requesting going to be effective at allowing them to equally access the test or whatever occupation they're trying to do. And is this occupation specific? So if they're going to school versus, you know, some other type of uh, requirements, do you have norms or how, you know, how do you decide what's necessary for the job or career they're, they're applying for? Yeah. So of course, most of what I do is in the, in the realm of testing. And I can tell you that the visual presentations of different tests are quite different. Um, so, for example, the medical board spent years developing a very good visual display for, their, for the U.S. medical licensing exam um, and actually consulted with me several times during the course of that development. So um, they're really striving towards what's called a universal test design, which means that it's accessible to anyone, um, regardless of their uh, visual status. Uh, the, the test taker can reverse contrast, meaning instead of black print on a white screen, they can have white print on a black screen. They can change the color uh, of the background, they can change the color of the text, and they can um, go through multiple different magnification levels of the test material, all on their own. Um, and so for students, medical students taking that medical licensing exam, um, there's a wide range of um, available visual presentations available to them. And so therefore, um, that eliminates a lot of need for some accommodations for some visual disabilities. Um, other tests, there was one 
medical board exam for a specialty, um, and I probably shouldn't say which one, but I can tell you that the visual display was incredibly poor. It was a difficult-to-read font. The font was blue, and it was on a yellow background. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Well, I was correct because, as you know, we used to have a visual field protocol um, with yellow on uh, yellow background and blue light because it's so difficult for some people to see. Um, <laughs> and and this medical board was using that as the visual display. Um, and so it was the rare case where uh, a, a, the physician taking this board exam wanted to take it with paper and pencil. And I supported that position because um, the visual computer display was just so bad that paper and pencil would be a better option for this student or for this physician. Um, most of the time, paper and pencil, because it has a lot less flexibility in terms of the way it can be displayed, is, is not as good a, an option for visually disabled people as um, uh, our modern computer displays with uh, liquid crystal displays or uh, even better light-emitting diode displays. So if this, this student applied and was accepted, do they get time prior to the test to figure out, you know, do they want to flip the colors or the background or the size? Do they get time to really, and support to, to decide what accommodation would be best before they sit down that day and do the test? Is it before the day or how does that work? Yes, they usually have several weeks notice. Um, and, and one of the things that I often recommend is that the, the students sit down um, at, with the uh, sample software that a lot of these test organizations provide and, and play with the display a bit. Not everybody is as, as flexible with their test presentation as the medical board because the medical board is, um, has a lot of resources to do that kind of thing. Um, so, and, and the ideal situation, Lynn, would be for the test taker to sit down with their eye care practitioner and the two to look at the, um, the display options together right. um, to determine what would be best for them. Yeah, and that'd be great. And then the eye care practitioner can check any type of prescription or anything else that could be needed to to help accommodate for that testing. Uh, this is all very interesting, David. We're going to need to take a break here in just a moment. And when we return, um, we'll really I'm really interested in hearing more of the accommodations and and hear about extended time because I know that's one thing. You know, in schools, the first thing they want to know is where they should sit if there's a visual issue and the extended time. And how would you ever figure out how much time and and what are the norms on that? So we'll get back to all these accommodations in just a few minutes after the break. Dr. Lynn will be right back after this. Can 
your child see, really see, more than 2020? Does your child struggle in school, have trouble with tracking when reading, or resist writing? Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's award-winning book, See It, Say It, Do It, provides parents and teachers with specific tools and strategies in visualization and processing. Improve and empower your child's learning and performance in school, sports, and play. Get See It, Say It, Do It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Vision Beyond Sight will help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Join Dr. Lynn each week for a new exciting episode, Vision Beyond Sight. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's book, 50 Tips to Improve Your Sports Performance, has identified the top 50 ways for you to achieve excellent results in any sport activity, enhance eye-mind-body coordination skills, achieve the mental edge, prevent injuries. This book belongs in every athlete's or coach's sports bag. Get 50 tips to improve your sports performance on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Here's Dr. Lynn. Hi, everybody. It's Dr. Lynn, and we have with us Dr. David Damari today. Uh, he's an expert on, he's an optometrist, providing not only excellent optometric care, but his real specialty is in working with those patients that have some type of visual uh, functional difficulty impacting their learning and especially their ability to take time tests like uh, medical tests or, or college tests, and things like that. Uh, let's get back to some of the kinds of conditions, David, that you see most commonly that often, first of all, are missed by many eye doctors and, and, and um, other physicians. And then when we do a thorough binocular evaluation, we find significant things like convergence insufficiency and eye movement problems. And those issues are enough to really sometimes impair or greatly affect a student's ability to take a, a long time test. So talk to us about, you know, what is CI, convergence insufficiency, and, uh, and some of the eye movement problems that you find and what you do about that uh, for accommodations. Sure. So, yeah, convergence insufficiency is the most common binocular vision dysfunction. Um, and so, therefore, it's also probably the most common condition for which I see 
requests for accommodations. Um, and the interesting thing about convergence insufficiency, or CI, as you know, Lynn, is that the longer somebody is working at near point, the more fatigued they become. Their symptoms become worse. The page starts to blur more. Um, they they get more fatigued. They are more likely to get headaches, et cetera. And so the request for extended time for that condition is really quite controversial. And frankly, I don't think it serves patients very well to request extended time uh, for convergence insufficiency. Um, as, as you know, most children, young children who have convergence insufficiency, the thing they instinctively do to try to get around the problem is find some way to surreptitiously cover one eye. Right. Um, because when they occlude one eye, they no longer have to worry about coordinating the two eyes together to look at the page. And so uh, my most typical recommendation for test candidates with convergence insufficiency is for them to wear an occluder during the test. Now, I would never recommend that for my patients for the long term um, for their academic progress. But for the purpose of it, purposes of taking a high-stakes one- or two-day test, uh, or especially a test over the course of a half-day, uh, occlusion is an excellent accommodation for convergence insufficiency, um, especially if they can't get, you know, the highly effective treatment of office-based vision therapy for the CI in time for the exam. Um, David, so if I could interfere, uh, interrupt here just for a second, yeah. uh, do you have them practice that? Because isn't that a little abrupt and change for somebody who's never really read a long time one eye? Um, how well do they adapt for that long of a time if that's not their style of reading, you know, in right. everyday life? Yeah, it, and it depends. It's very patient-specific. Um, so, again, I think this is a great place for the test candidate to work with their eye care practitioner um, to try that out and give it a chance. Um, and, and remember, the goal here is to give the patient an equal playing field on the test while not compromising um, the the effectiveness of the test to look at the candidate's actual abilities, um, you know, that are trying to be tested, the knowledge, skills, and abilities, for example, to be a medical doctor or the knowledge, skills, and ability to be a lawyer in a particular state. Um, so, so really the practitioner and the candidate are going to best know what works well for them. But in this, in a situation like convergence insufficiency, where it's well documented that the, the symptoms are exacerbated with extended time, extended time is, is going to be a very difficult thing to prove um, is the thing that levels the playing field for that candidate. Right. Right. And then what about eye movement? Deep, um, you know, students that can't track well, lose their place, skip words, yep. a marker. Yeah. Yeah. So saccadic dysfunction or reading eye movement dysfunction 
um, is fairly common. It's not as common in adults, um, but it still exists. Uh, and so that is one condition where it's demonstrated that if you cannot track accurately when you're reading, you are going to read more slowly um, just so that you can keep up with the tracking. Um, the problem I often encounter in students or test candidates who claim eye movement disorders is that they haven't um, been assessed with one of the standardized tests for eye movement disorders. Um, and there's still a, a fair amount of controversy about these tests out there uh, in the world of psychology and, and psychometric testing. So the two most common tests that are well standardized for eye movement, the developmental eye movement test, um, or it's, you know, the, the King-Divic test, both of which have the patient read numbers on a page. Um, and then the other one is a Visigraph or Readalyzer, um, or a, the, the newest one is Right Eye, which has patients read a passage, and a computer-assisted program tracks their uh, eye movements um, and so creates a digital record of their eye movements. Um, those are really the best standardized tests, all of those situations. Um, and I particularly like it when a test candidate has done the readalyzer or the vis uh, visigraph or the right eye, and those data are supplied. The difficulty is um, that the norm normative values uh, for those tests, the visigraph and the readalyzer especially, don't really agree with most uh, psychometric tests of reading. Um, and so when a practitioner just simply uh, supplies a report that includes uh, the, the student's performance compared to those norms, it's very difficult to make a determination because those norms are not standardized for the average American. Um, Much so less I a college student. I mean, that's where we've run into... That's right. Yeah. That's right. It, right. Yeah, and so the... The standard for the law is not medical students or college students. The, the standard for the law is the average person in the general population. Um, mm -hmm. And so those are the norms that it has to be compared to. So what I really like to see is the number of regressions. In other words, how often do they uh, jump their eyes backwards when they're trying to track um, the time of fixation, the number of fixations, those kinds of things, because um, those give me a much better idea of the pa if the patient is actually impaired in the reading eye movements than the reading speed. Um, the other the other difficulty I have with some of these reading eye movement tests is it's tough to tell if a patient is purposely reading more slowly. Um, and I hate to bring up the the um, situation of malingering, but it does occur. Um, right. 
because extended time has been shown to provide an unfair advantage for normal people, uh, for people with normal uh, eye movements, for people who are not ADHD or uh, learning disabled. Extended time preferred uh, gives them an unfair advantage on standardized tests. And so there are, you know, there are well-documented cases of people who um, go looking for a diagnosis so that they can get extended time. And so we have to, um, one of the roles of the gatekeeper and the reason we look carefully at clinical data is because we want to assure um, that disabled people are getting equal access, which means that if somebody is not disabled, they're not being allowed to get an unfair advantage on people who have actual disabilities. And that's always a concern in practice, whether it's for this disability accommodation or funding, you know, with brain injury, any of that, you know, how do you, we all have ways to try to differentiate malingerers, but that's a real challenge sometimes. Um, Is there anything in particular that you look for or helps you rule out malingering and as a part of this problem? Well, there aren't any really good studies yet. Um, I I strongly suspect that if we look at eye movement recordings of people who are trying to fake a reading disability versus um, people who actually have a specific reading disability or an eye movement dysfunction, that those eye movement recordings would look quite different. And actually, one of the reasons I wanted to um, work at a place like Ohio State is there's um, a lot of research resources here and a lot of great faculty, um, both in the College of Optometry and in other colleges here at the Ohio State University who can help with research on this very issue um, so we can both protect the integrity of exams and make sure that those who are truly disabled are well represented and are able to get an equal playing field in uh, standardized testing. Yeah, and that's really great. You know, years ago, I was part of a study with a physiatrist who saw um, many mild traumatic brain injury patients. He, uh, I didn't diagnose them, they were diagnosed and he was working with them on rehab. And he had asked me if there was any way that I could do an eye movement study with him to differentiate like malingerers from people that truly had, um, you know, issues secondary to their um, injury. And what I found, it was usually simple. I mean, the pattern of somebody that really had a brain injury uh, looked like a kid with severe reading and learning problems. Yep. But where I couldn't differentiate was if it was really a result of just eye movements versus if they had a history of dyslexia. So if yes. they were really diagnosed with dyslexia, many of those patients, and is it the dyslexia, and there's a whole conversation, is it the dyslexia or the eye movement problem? But that was where I couldn't always differentiate whether it was a concussion versus a history of really significant dyslexia. Yeah, yeah. It, it is difficult. And, you know, as 
as um, good eye movement recording systems become more and more affordable, uh, so more and more practitioners can get them. Uh, I'm very excited about the prospects of being able to differentiate those kinds of cases. Which is great. Um, and certainly, you know, the history is really important, which I never had history. I just had the, um, <laughs> you know, the recording because of this is one thing that I've run into frequently where often they're very bright kids, sometimes even gifted. They've had, you know, IQ tests. Mm-hmm. But there may be two e twice exceptional, and that may have never been officially identified. And so they do well in school, and then all of a sudden they're in uh, either trying to get to graduate school or law school, something like that. And so they don't have any track record of any learning difficulties. So then to come and document that there's this visual disability that they've been dealing with all their lives um, – has really, you know, created a lot of resistance in anybody who's looking at the student. Uh, do you run yes. into that? Uh, I I do occasionally. Um, my my colleagues in it, who are gatekeepers who are uh, psychologists run into it much much more frequently um, because you know um, tension, especially in the area of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, um, you know, it's a brain disorder that is a lifelong disorder. Um, but that doesn't mean that there are certain some kids who don't really receive the diagnosis because they are gifted. Uh, and then later on, you know, in adulthood or when they get to higher levels of education, as you described, um, all of a sudden, you know, the level is too high for them to just overcome the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder um, through their own uh, strategies. And and so that becomes quite a controversial because, again, as gatekeepers, our role is to look for impairment. And if there wasn't any evidence of impairment, it's very difficult to say, well, you know, you should get accommodations um, just because. Uh, so, right. y- you know, uh, I think that's when the documentation becomes exceptionally important. And and that's one of the one of the reasons why I'm really excited to do some research in these areas with eye movements, because uh, I, I really believe that somebody who's just faking it to try to get extended time and I'm not saying that's widespread, but it does occur. Um, I, I really believe their eye movement pattern will look quite different from somebody who has attention issues, who has uh, dyslexia or specific reading disability, or especially somebody who has um, real eye movement dysfunction problems. And, and therefore, you know, it gives us a real window into how to accommodate these disabled people. Um, in a way that's fair and equitable. Yeah, I look forward to that research, David. That sounds yeah. great. Great. Um, are there other um, accommodations you might mention besides the extended time, the occlusion? What other kinds of options might there be? Yeah, so there are several. Um, one of the best ones for people with visual dysfunctions is uh extra breaks because as you know 
um, people trying to work through their visual dysfunctions, can, it can get very fatiguing. Uh, and so if they can take breaks that are more frequent um, and take slightly longer breaks, that really helps uh, the student or the test taker who has a visual dysfunction. You know, one of our most common recommendations is the 20-20-20 rule. Look up every 20 minutes, uh, at least 20 feet away for at least 20 seconds. Um, and so being able to facilitate that in a test is, is very important. And so that's one of the best accommodations an eye care practitioner can recommend for their patients who have visual disabilities. Um, uh, extra time is, is a valuable accommodation for somebody with eye movement disorders. Um, a, the use of plus addition lenses, um, reading lenses for accommodative disorders is sometimes very effective. Uh, unless the accommodation is incredibly unstable, in which case then uh, extra breaks, again, is the best accommodation um, so that they can relax their accommodation a bit, they're focusing a bit, and let it settle down. Um, uh, There are certain patients who um, certain kind of tints um, are very helpful, and I think that's Part of what Helen Erlen was in was noticing when she created her Erlen syndrome. Um, so sometimes tinted lenses can be very effective, and those can be given as a what's called a personal equipment, uh, a personal um, item exception. And so therefore, it doesn't really have to go through the normal test accommodation channels. Um, because it's just something that's that the student is going to use um, in the test environment that doesn't give them an added advantage. Um, so so tinted lenses are often uh, a really good accommodation. And then, you know, there's an increasing number of people with dry eye disease. Right. And uh, I'm seeing a lot of, of requests to bring in eye drops. Uh, and that, again, is something that can be requested as a personal item exception uh, so that they can bring the eye drops into the test environment with them uh, and use them as they need them during right. the testing. Well, David, this has just been wonderful information. Uh, we're just about out of time, and I want to make sure people know how they can reach you personally that'll all be on our uh our page uh your business name is visual disability consulting but i just want to empower all the folks listening to know that sometimes these accommodations aren't a big deal as far as what needs to be done but boy they can make a huge impact in the performance of a student in a, a very significant, I mean, this could totally shape somebody's life taking a big test. And so I want to thank you greatly for your expertise. I'm excited to see the research you'll be doing um, at Ohio State. And, and thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure to talk to you again. That's great. Bye-bye for now.
Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.